Knock, knock, guess who is knocking at your door? That's right, you know it's the morning for sure. Might be a geoff, it could be. Maybe it's been around me. Hello, denizens. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff Openshaw, the hostest with the mostest. Happy to be here with you. Thank you for joining us for another week of Latter-day Saint news and commentary. I am thrilled to be accompanied once more by a man who hasn't been with us for a little while, actually, Mr. Devin Thorpe. How are you doing, sir? It is great to be with you. My life is better just because you've invited me to join you tonight. So thank you. Well, it's great to have you here, sir. What I love about Devin is when he says things like that, in my mind, I think he's just using dry humor and sarcasm, but he's actually being sincere and he's genuinely, he means all these words. Yes, I do. And I admire that in a person because that's not, I'm not native. I would say the same thing. You know, I'd be like, oh, it's, it is changing my life to be here, Devin. It's a delight. <laughs> and I would be like that. So uh, you're great. So, so I appreciate your sincerity. It's something I aspire to uh, quite a bit. So what's what's been new? Last time I think we had had done the show was put. We did kind of a a debrief on the election. We did yeah. a post mortem yeah. there, and uh, I double checked. I still did not win the election. I am still not. You a did not contest the results. I did not contest the results. You did not I, march on Provo City Hall. I the, did the, not stop the Shrine of Curtis. Race. Oh. So I, you know, I remain not a congressman. <laughs> well you know yeah you and ben mcadams you guys yes be- yes uh i think the hardest part for ben mcadams losing is that he now is like me uh, i think it keeps him up at night uh no, no i'm just kidding but uh you know ben great human being but I think this is the first time he's ever lost an election. And it, it you can see in his eyes, he did not like it very much. That's hard, uh, it's, especially in the third district where it's really, you know, fourth district where it's really yeah. tight typically. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's. Yeah. And uh, tough. so yes, it is, it is tough and he's a phenomenal human being and uh, he will be back. He will clearly run for something in 2022. We'll be talking a little bit maybe about Mike Lee later on. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping Ben will run against Mike for the Senate seat here. In oh, Europe. that's tough. I don't think he'd win, though. He, when, do you think it's he'd a just tough be, race. He'd be, be a sacrificial a lamb for that one? Yeah, that's. that's I think he, he's got the best chance of any Democrat. That's fair. I would. But, but it will be an uphill battle. A moderate Democrat against a almost libertarian streaking Republican? Mm-hmm. That could be very interesting. That yeah. could be very interesting. And yeah, Mike Lee's up in 2022. Yeah. I don't live in Utah, so I miss out on all this this good fun that yes. all you people get to have out there. Out here, though, since it's an odd-numbered year, we get to have our, our uh, governor race, I believe, this year. So oh. that's... Virginia does things in a quirky way. Our state elections are in odd-numbered years, and governors can only serve one term. And oh. So, and so the what it changes, though, is it makes it so whoever is lieutenant governor is sort of the de facto 
nominee to become governor next time around. You're like governor junior for four years, then you become governor. But it's kind of cool because then governors straight up cannot run for re-election while they're in office. So yeah. they, all they can do is focus on governing, which is why Virginia is one of the better run states in the country, my friends, except we're not quite where we need to be in terms of vaccine uh, rollout yeah. uh, and getting shots in arms. We're a little, we're lagging a little bit on that yeah. front. But Utah's otherwise. not doing very well there either. Um, I suspect in Utah, it has a little bit to do with a lack of interest. Uh, I don't know how true that is in no, I mean, out here, I think we're down with it for the most part. I mean, Virginia, like most states in the country, is seeing greater a greater gap, a greater chasm between urban areas and rural areas in terms of how they vote politically. I mean, I think America used to be a lot more mixed up. I mean, a lot of even farming communities voted Democratic for a very long time because Democrats were the ones sponsoring all sorts of um, subsidies for farmers and things like that. Mm-hmm. But things change, right? And so now we're seeing very stark lines drawn. So you have huge parts of uh, like Western Virginia, Shenandoah Valley, everything going along the Appalachians, deeply Republican territory. I don't know what the... Uh, what the mood is about vaccines in that case. But that's how the whole state is. It's rural areas that are deeply red. And then there's just these blue pockets of Richmond, Hampton Roads, the DC suburbs, and like Charlottesville and Roanoke. And that's that's how it is, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm excited though. I am excited that vaccines are rolling out. I think they are a wonderful blessing. I certainly hope, I, I understand Absolutely. everyone's- I understand people have different opinions, but I think, and of course, if you're in a situation where- you might react adversely to a vaccine. And those are genuine and, and real situations. I've even been there. I got a pneumonia vaccine once and it wrecked me for like five days. I, I might as well have just had pneumonia, honestly. Yeah. But um, but for the most part, if you're able to get one, I certainly hope everyone will will get yeah. one so that we can we can nip this thing in the bud. Let's get this thing over with. Let's do this. We're getting yes. there, folks. Let's do that. We are getting there. And um, how is it for you guys? Do you have church? I know Utah is Utah, but in Salt Lake, I mean, you, do you have church in person? Are you attending in person? What's so the situation our like? Our ward that? settled on inviting half the ward every week, and we do a Zoom cast of the meetings. And so it's my sense that uh, there are more people participating every week via Zoom than in the room, but I've never. I haven't been since I spoke in September. And then you may recall that the case counts in September really spiked. And so my wife, who is a little more frail uh, than I, uh, she and I have tried to be as careful as we can. Uh, And so far we've avoided getting COVID. Uh, So we've been careful enough so far, apparently. Does your ward have a cap though? I mean, you're doing half the ward each Sunday, but is there an actual numerical number they will not exceed, period? We don't have a cap, but our pre-COVID attendance was about 125. So, you know, half would be 60 and some of that half don't go. They just participate online. So I'm I'm thinking there are 30 or 40 people probably in the chapel. Okay. And for anyone listening, you're probably hearing, wait a minute, Devin lives in Utah and he has 120 people in his ward. Yes. Downtown Salt Lake is a different beast in terms of, of church units and how many people are actually going. So that's that doesn't quite, that doesn't surprise me. I remember um, a friend of mine was living, there's even a branch in downtown Salt Lake. Like it's so weird there. Yeah. And he said the branch was pretty much just existed to uh, handle welfare issues for the, the basically- There are several branches- yeah. And he was, he was, 
And he was the ward. They called him as the financial clerk at the time. And he was like, wow, I've never seen it. Like, this is an incredible insight into like the most amplified version of of welfare in a ward and, and of helping people out like that. Like he's never seen it like that in his life, which I think could be a good lesson for a lot of us. We realize how much the church uh, does kick in to help. Yeah. Them. It is really inspiring to see what goes on in these inner city wards where, um, you know, there were years when I was in the state presidency here where, you know, we were doing on the order of a million dollars a year in the stake of Wonderful. welfare and fast offerings combined in terms of support for families. So it's it, it, counting DI coupons and food, you know, is up in that, in that area That's of a million dollars a year. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm grateful we have the resources to pull for that. And that, uh, you know, for many, I know that when you pay fast offerings, initially it stays local, but then it can get passed along and it's good that we can support that at a, at a church level, certainly. I mean, I've been the recipient of help from award at time, different times in my life, and I think it's, it's great. It's great that we can do that, and it's great that we can be there for uh, for one another. Yeah, well, absolutely. Lots of Latter Day Saint news going on this week, Devin. Oh my gosh, yes. Lots, of things, especially because last week we had an interview. If you have not heard our interview with Liz Brown McDonald, listen to this episode first. Then go back and listen to last week's. It's a great discussion about where, where she conducted a study with young adults who had left the church and described themselves as having, quote, religiously rigid parents, basically. And it was a study of whether parents' religious rigidity has a- what kind of adverse effects it can have on on their children, on young adults in particular, and and making them choose potentially to leave the church. Very interesting discussion. It was great having her on. It was fantastic. Oh, good. So you listen. So I this episode before you listen to that one. Listen to this one, but check that out. That was a great one. Evergreen content there. I think you'll get a a big kick out of it. And yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff has been happening because of that because we're basically on two weeks of news. And um, you know, I don't want to bury the lead, but I feel like maybe I should not go with the obvious choice for the top for the first story to keep the people interested. So I'm going to lead off with news that broke today, Devin. Today, today, tragic. The Hill-Kamora pageant is over forever, everybody. Um, If you remember, it was back during 2018, which I kind of refer to as the the year of lustration. If you've never heard of that term, it's a term used in the former Soviet Union to mean sort of removing communist uh, insignia and names. It's sort of removing the communist legacy from cities and communities and former Soviet states. Lustration is an interesting process, and that's kind of what we got into starting in 2018 when President uh, Nelson got serious about removing Mormon and changing a lot of the things we did and all that. And one of the things announced in the fall of 2018 was that pageants uh, like the Hilkamora pageant, the Mormon Miracle pageant in Manti, you know, Nauvoo pageant, the Mesa pageant, pageants would either stop altogether or be reduced in scope. So we've known for a while this was going to happen, and we knew that the Hilkamora pageant wasn't going to last much longer. It was It's the most prominent of any of these, but uh, it was on the chopping block, which is sad. Um, the, the rele- By the way, the statement said that local celebrations of culture and history may be appropriate, but larger productions such as pageants are discouraged. So I think that um, is why... Uh, pageants in Mesa and maybe like the British pageant, things that kind of celebrate more of the, something in, in church history or st- sticking around. But these big pageants like in uh, the Hill Camorra, where it's just this massive undertaking, telling the whole story of the Book of Mormon and all this, no more. So this year was supposed to be the last year for the pageant. They did it in 2019. 2020, obviously, they did not do the pageant because of COVID. 
And then the church just announced today that also because we're still in the pandemic, we're not there yet, um, they have postponed all pageants that were to take place in 2021. Um, so the Nauvoo pageant, the British pageant will still happen in 2022. Uh, the Mesa pageant will kick into gear again once the uh, once the renovation project is done at the Mesa Temple. The Mesa Temple has been closed for a couple of years now for that. Uh, but they're not just going to like give the uh, Hill Cumorah pageant a victory lap and bring it back next year for fun. Like that's just it. It's done. It's done. That's but, it. You know, it's, Never it's, to return. It's sad in a way, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's clearly the direction we're going, but uh, you know, the Hilcomora pageant was a phenomenal program. Uh, you know, it, it may or may not have had a big impact on missionary work, which we think was its kind of objective. I doubt it did. But especially in recent years, uh, attendance was off, and it was almost all Mormons. But my gosh, it was it, it was a spectacular program. I and uh, uh, I went to school in upstate New York, a grad school, and so we attended one summer. And it, you know, oh, did you go to big. Cornell? Did you go to Cornell, Devin? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes. Did you go to Cornell? <laughs> did you, did you it's study? about as subtle. It's about as subtle as. Did, as did you study agriculture? Went to school in, you know, in Cambridge. Yeah. Went to yeah I would just go in Cambridge, like Big Red. I mean, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I'm too modest to say what school, right? <laughs> Was it on the Finger Lakes, Devin? <laughs> uh, get lost in, the, in them Finger Lakes. I'm so glad you give me crap. But anyway, like, that's cool. You got to go. I've never been to one of these pageants. And since uh, I believe the closest one to us down here in D.C. is up there, uh, up there in, uh, in Palmyra. Uh, I mean, we talked about, my wife and I discussed, maybe we would actually want to go and check this out for its its final run. This was even before, this was before COVID happened at all. So this year, I don't think we've been optimistic that it would have happened, but uh, I'm a little sad. I mean, I think it's, I, you say they're wonderful. I admit I look at them and I think they seem kind of goofy to me, but yeah. I've never been, but I've never it, been. And I want to like experience going to a drive-in movie, except that it's a, a stage play or something. And so I've always just thought they were fun. I, uh, the... You know, you can debate. You know, the the, the religious implications, uh, the the doctrinal teaching quality, et cetera, et cetera, is all, you know, eye of the beholder stuff. But I really enjoyed them. Uh, I've been to the Manti pageant several times. Uh, I've been to the what do they call it? Uh, the man who knew. I think uh, the uh, up in Cache Valley, they did a they do a pageant there. That's a, that's a Bill Murray movie. You're <laughs> You're thinking of the man who knew too much, but maybe, maybe too not. But, no, the man too who little. knew too little. Yeah. Too little, yeah. But the one up in Cache, Cache Valley is uh, about uh, Martin Harris. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I've heard of that. Returned to the church late in life and lived up there. And and uh, so it's a celebration of him coming back and, and bearing his testimony. And that one, um, in some ways, was my favorite it, uh, because it, you know, the the Smith brothers, Joseph and Hiram, were so young when they were killed that it disconnects us from the history that was really quite recent. Um, like I got to know uh, Hiram's grandson, Hiram. Uh, and so I knew him 25 years ago uh, when he was 90. And he, uh, I don't think he'd ever... He obviously had not met his grandfather, or maybe it was great grandfather. But you know, these yeah. the, the uh, because uh, 
uh, Martin Harris lived to be very old, he connected several generations of Mormons to that you know the, all those church history stories that we hear, and yet the, the people who really lived them by and large were gone, and he was still around. So it was kind of a cool pageant. I like. And that. I think that maybe that one will survive. I don't know because it's, it's rooted in history at smaller scale. For those who have never seen these, I mean, I think we have ideas what the pageants entail. What it what and especially I want to know the difference. You've got the uh, the Hilcomora pageant and and the Mormon Miracle pageant in Manti. What's the difference between the two in terms of the story they tell or like length or anything? I mean, what is each one about? So the and why? How, you know, I I don't remember the stories very well, so I'm not the right person to ask. But I have seen them both, and the the uh, Palmyra pageant, of course, emphasizes the story of the Book of Mormon, right? And the um, Manti pageant works in the story of the pioneers into that story. So it's sort of flashbacks and, uh, you know, and a a retelling, but it incorporates the story of the pioneers because it's Manti, which was settled by pioneers. Yeah, of course. The Manti one's interesting to me because, I mean, they do it on the hill. Like there's a temple just in the background, like as a backdrop the whole time you're doing it. So. Do they do it? Do they close the temple early for temple work when it's pageant night? Or could you be, potentially be in there doing a session and there's this multimedia presentation happening out the window while you're inside? Yeah, I don't know. I um, presume they don't. I, pre- I presume they close it. Uh, I would think so. But yeah, and I know right. that one's done too. That one already completed its its run. And yeah, that's it, it was done last year, right? Or the year before? Or the year before, yeah. Manti Temple, best temple in the church, people. <laughs> serious it is i'm not being i'm not joking that is the best temple in the church if you rank temples manti is easily number one I go ahead did, fight, I fight me know, I, I, I did not know that i will just take that as gospel truth no it's it is i think i told rosie card this a few weeks ago it is the greatest temple in the church yeah. bar none everyone should go there so i'm sad to see this go um i hope someday i can see something like that i don't know I don't know. Yeah. Well, should we, speaking of stories, should we talk about murder among the Mormons? Is it okay if we talk about that? Yeah. I mean, that's been a big thing that, that came out over this weekend. Yeah. This, the new Netflix docu-series, Napoleon Dynamite director involved in it. I mean, lots lots going on here. Let's let's talk about it. I have not watched it yet. I'm yeah, a bad so, so, Yeah, I watched it. Um, you know, the... I thought it was very well done. Uh, it, it's very interesting. Uh, it's rather short. It's just three episodes. Uh, none of the episodes is longer than an hour. And so if you wanted to, you could do it in a single sitting. Hold on. But you know what else I can do with three hours? I can watch Avengers Endgame. So, <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> I don't know, David. I don't know. Yeah, so it is a tough decision for. <laughs> I get that. I get that. So I could I could watch half of a Lord of the Rings movie in yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah, but you know this is an interesting story for me because my father worked with and knew very well uh, Gary Sheets, whose wife was killed by the bomb, and and knew well uh, Steve Christensen, who was killed by the bomb, because they worked together at uh, Coordinated Financial Services. And uh, Mark Hoffman had targeted those two because they were the 
principles of coordinated financial services, and they he wanted to make it look like it was a disgruntled investor. And uh, that kind of worked. Um, but yeah, it was it, it's a messed up story, and there are some things that I think we may never know uh, because it's not clear that uh, the perpetrator, Mark Hoffman, has been forthright about the third bomb that blew up in his car, in his lap. Um, how did that not kill him? What's that? How did that not kill him? I mean, he's serving a life sentence. How did, yeah, how did he so, not die when a bomb blew up in his lap? Yeah. It's not clear that it was made the same way. So it may be that he made a little bomb to throw people off by becoming a victim instead uh-huh. of the perpetrator. But of course it just solidified the attention on him very quickly. Uh, so it didn't work. Um, uh, it, but it's possible he made the bomb for other people and just the way, you know, he might just have gotten lucky. One of the things that's highlighted in the movie is the fact that there he was and meet, you know, just after being blown up by the bomb, uh, a good Samaritan walked by, saw he was wearing the garments and uh, gave him a blessing, anointed him with oil and commanded him to live. Um, that is, uh, that gets prominent play in the documentary. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's tough to know why he survived. And, and to me that, that remains a little bit mysterious, uh, even after watching this. And there were several books written about it. I read the books years and years ago. I didn't reread them to refresh my recollection, but yeah, I thought the, the fun thing about the documentary is he, he got a number of the people who were close to the story to be interviewed. And of course they were all interviewed on television, you know, 36, 37 years ago. And so now we get to see, you know, how their views of those experiences have been shaped by time and experience. And so people who were at the time, big defenders of Mark Hoffman now see him as the devil. Uh, You know, one guy repeatedly just refers to him as Satan. Uh, and you know, that's kind of how evil, uh, he was. It was only his runaway greed that prevented him from, uh, you know, succeeding in really altering Mormonism in, in dramatic ways. Um, and, and you can all watch that. Does it, does it get a lot into the whole salamander stuff or is that oh, more yeah. of a, or is that, Okay. Yeah, you know, that's it's interesting. You know, Hoffman was brilliant. The first thing he found, let's put that in air quotes, right? right. The first thing he found was uh, the Anton letter that uh, corroborated one of the most important moments in church history when um, Joseph Smith took the uh, hand copied uh, translations uh, to an expert who confirmed that they were well translated. And um, it's just, you know, it, because of that letter, uh, Mark Hoffman was brought into the inner sanctum of the church and was given instant credibility. And so uh, he just was then able to begin to turn the table and work the opposite angle over and over again, uh, harming the church 
because he had been established as a credible source by the brethren themselves. It's I almost see it's not the same the same thing by any means, but I'm reminded of John C. Bennett, who in the Nauvoo era kind of s- snuck into Nauvoo and gratiated himself with Joseph Smith and Hiram and others. Yeah. Uh, and he was totally a bad actor and got him into all. And he was, of course, he was involved later on after he turned on Joseph Smith, you know, and in uh, the prophets, I don't want to say the prophets downfall, but, you know, the martyrdom and everything that happened there. So yeah, I need so- to watch this documentary. Yes. I, I know much of the story but I just have not got, it's like, I don't know. I could do this or I could watch Cobra Kai. I don't know. I'm just, uh, what can I say, Devin? I'm not a good person. Yeah, to w- break it up into pieces. Watch the three episodes, one, you know, one per week and you'll. You, there we go. One per week. All of, all of Mormondom will have finished the whole thing and I'll be here a month after the fact. I'm like, <laughs> guys, have you seen this? <laughs> Are right. you serious? <laughs> Are yeah, you serious? For people your age and younger, this I think there are a lot of folks who just don't know this story. They may have heard about Mark Hoffman. They understand there were forgeries and bombings, but the story will blow young people away. Uh, I I have to wonder what it's like watching this when you have no background in it and you're not a member of the church. I I really want to watch it through that lens and see how this is for lay consumers and just to see what what they would think of this episode. Because Utah in the 80s, I mean, Utah is... Not a large, a hugely populated state to begin with, but in the eighties, far more insular than it even than it is now, for sure. I mean, you did not have these silicone slopes, you did not have the Olympics, you had none of this going on. Utah was a yeah. My office jam. was two blocks from the one of the bombings. Yeah, uh, I live, you know, a hundred yards from that bombing now, uh, and so yeah, this this feels so real and present to me. Believe it. I can't really even imagine. I can't put myself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know the history, doesn't know the church, but it would be fascinating to to get the take of someone who just sees it cold. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to check it out. I'll re- I will report and tell you what I think of it. Good, please. Mr. Mr. Sir. So, a uh, cool thing that's come out here, the Wilford Woodruff Papers website is live. Did you even know there were Wilford Woodruff papers? We hear so much about the Joseph Smith papers. That's been this big project, right? But there's a foundation uh, that handles Wilford Woodruff's papers, and uh, it's not affiliated. I think they've worked with the church, but it's not a church organization that's handled this. But you go to wilfordwoodruffpapers.org, and you can see the first batch of transcribed documents, about 1,500 pages, with information about his, his family, historic images, a timeline of his life. He kept very meticulous records, it turns out. And so you can learn a ton about Wilford Woodruff, perhaps more than many other uh, church leaders that we'll find over the years. And, you know, the church, of course, I think wanted to take part in this and help out with it. I mean, and even, uh, you know, you've got Richard Turley, who uh, recently retired as the managing director of the church's comms department, is actually serving as the chair and advisor of the board for the Wilford Woodruff papers. Um, And he, his actual, uh, (laughs) they throw this in there, his third great grandfather. Theodore Turley also was a missionary companion of Woodruff in England in the early 1840s. So, you know, you got to be, got to touch that church royalty somehow. It's like how the, all the Irings, McConkeys, and Hinkleys are, Hinkleys are actually married to each other. That, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But anyways, this is pretty cool. I agree. I love that this is a resource and it makes me wonder if we will receive other papers down the line? Will there be papers for lots of different prophets? Will there be foundations? It's kind of like the equivalent of a presidential library in a way, but for former church leaders, as far as having a research institution and 
and lots of records uh, from from their past and their story, and a place where we can uh, you know codify all that and store it and learn from it as time goes on. So I don't know. I mean, will we have someday have a Gordon B. Hinckley papers? I think that would be a great monument to his legacy because. If I'm being perfectly frank, the Gordon B. Hickley Visitor Center building at BYU is kind of a letdown. So I think he deserves better. Just throwing that out there, everybody. You know, uh, the cool. uh, the time period through which he lived is the time period covered by the second volume of the Saints book. Yes. And I just finished that and it is fascinating. Uh, so let me just interject that to those who have not read that, um, it is so full of history. I didn't know. I'm embarrassed, and and that was not the case for the first tell the first volume of Saints. I knew that history pretty well. There were no no big surprises because that's there the were, stuff we that's the stuff we cover when we do our Doctrine and Covenant study every year. But we we top out by this at some point with Brigham Young, and we don't really go very far beyond it. So that's, yeah, yeah, we don't do much Brigham Young, let alone Wilford Woodruff. Uh, and so I really commend the book. Uh, you know, saints to to everyone. And one of the cool things is I I tend to read by listening, and uh, you know the the audio is available right for free in the new LDS library app, mm-hmm. and uh, so easy to access, access that. So that's I how think. I listened to. That's how I did the first saints during my commute, and it was great. I yeah, so I did it that way too. But I paid for the audio book on that one. I didn't find it in the app that's uh, the app is good but unless they've changed it some of the functionalities you know it's it's not meant to be a media player so you're because you can use you can listen to audio of almost anything in the gospel library app if you turn that functionality on which is amazing they've got they've had people dubbing all this stuff all over the app the downside is it's not like a podcasting app or something else where it's going to kind of save your exact place where you were and pick it up it's a little bit jankier than, than i'm sure what you had was more seamless in terms of just pausing an audiobook and carrying on right right but, right but it's a free option and it's great yeah uh, real quick mention by the way everybody we talked about some things being postponed or put off also the tabernacle choir has postponed its heritage tour which was supposed to take place in 2020 this is a tour of many Nordic states, uh, as well as uh, Scotland and Wales, celebrating much of not the choir's heritage, but also the heritage of the church and many of these early Latter-day Saints who even sacrificed much to leave their homelands and come to, uh, you know, whether it was Ohio or Missouri or Illinois or the Salt Lake Valley, for example. We have a lot of history in these countries. So they were supposed to do it last year. That, of course, did not happen. Um, and then they, they were trying to do it this year over the summer, but they have postponed that as well, which is unfortunate. But unlike the pageants, uh, this will come back next year. Same same locations. We don't know the exact dates, but the same venues have all committed to having the choir there in 2022 when they go to Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, Scotland, and Wales. And that'll be great. Because the choir has not performed for a very long time. I actually dug this up. I tried to find when was the last time the choir just performed in any capacity. Best as I can tell, it was the music and the spoken word like this weekend last year wow. before COVID hit and the church canceled all meetings. And since that time, music and the spoken word has been doing archival uh, broadcasts of the choir for safety. And so, and of course, in general conference, uh, they have just been using you know previous broadcasts as well. So the choir has not. I don't know if they're rehearsing much or what they're doing, but they... We got to get him back in the game. I'm really hopeful that by October for October conference, we might be able to do it from the conference center with the choir up there if they're safe and maybe limited capacity in house for the rest, you know, socially distanced 
Mm-hmm. Not not fill up the conference center, you know, but uh, space it out a bit and maybe pull that off like a movie theater. Yeah, the I challenge is the choir itself. It tends to be a skew slightly older, not the most at-risk populations. They have to retire at 60, but it skews a little bit older. And uh, there are 300 of them. That's and a big group. And it's very plosive. Um, you can't exactly mask them up and ask them to uh, sing to their best. Yeah. Ability, so there are so, lots of yeah, things to consider. Yeah, we've got to we've got to get COVID gone before they can come back safely, and then you know if they all get vaccinated and well, that's going to be the big kicker. But as a as a COVID aside, everyone, there's a great piece from the Atlantic from last week that sort of games the different scenarios by season for how things were going with COVID. I think it was a really interesting and thoughtful piece about you know how we expected to get better, how summer could very well be reasonably normal if we keep the vaccination rates up. The big question is just going to be if we do it, if we get people vaccinated at a faster clip than any of these other versions of the virus can expand. That's the big kicker. And if we can make sure to do that before the fall, when the weather starts cooling again and the virus gets aggressive once more through the fall and winter, if we can do that, the next fall and winter will not be as bad and we can probably trudge through it. So anyway, it's a good piece. Maybe I'll link it here. Maybe I won't. If you want, shoot me an email, jeff at thisweekinmormons.com. I'll send it to you. It's fine. I'll give you a PDF of it. How's that sound? No paywall for you people. That'd be great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about the big news in Provo this week. Uh, I was uh, almost blown off my couch when I started seeing photos on social media of I woke up to rainbow this. Why? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, I truly was enthused. Uh, and I quickly learned that um, this had been organized, uh, planned in advance. It was a big day long celebration of the LGBTQ community on uh, BYU's campus. And it had some of the hallmarks of officialdom. And so I really was beginning to think that this had been a sanctioned celebration. Yeah. And then BYU tweeted out uh, a clarification, lest anyone be confused that no, uh, this was not a sanctioned, approved, uh, or otherwise good uh, event. And I was disappointed with BYU's... um, Failure to see an opportunity in that same pronouncement to say, notwithstanding the fact that we didn't sanction this event, uh, everyone is welcome at BYU and uh, we celebrate the LGBT community at BYU. But that that didn't happen. I thought that was a shame. Yeah, it was a little bit. Of, it was. I think it was a little bit of a knee jerk reaction from their public affairs office. I'm with you on that one. They could have made it a better thing than it was. The funny thing was too, is a lot of people talk about vandalism. And I love that the BYU police department actually said, uh, the Lieutenant Jeff Long said that, of course, there's a concern that because the Y vandalism does happen up there on the hillside of the Y. And that's, that's something they're concerned about, but the act was not considered vandalism because the students used flashlights to make their little rainbow image and no actual damage was done to anything. It's no different. It's like they could have all hiked up there just for funsies and then they just happened to turn flashlights on to the beautiful white Y, which reflected their colors. And that was that. So I love that. I don't know if that was a sneaky way to do it, but I think it's also a nice way to show they weren't trying to vandalize any property. They were just. It was perfect BYU behavior. 
uh, you know, protest behavior in, in hindsight. I thought, it, you know, it's just exactly the Utah nice, Mormon nice way to protest, you know, uh, leave no trace. <laughs> but uh, it really made a point. Um, y- you and this found- stems from a bigger thing, though, right? I mean, this was just sort of the culmination of Rainbow Day. Yeah, it was there. Rainbow Day was celebrated across campus. Even some of the faculty were openly celebrating and talking about it. You highlighted an interesting thing that I hadn't seen before you shared it with me. It was the uh, um, the 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 protest of the protest that was organized. Oh, uh, yes. The- Why you tell people about that? that flyer at least that you found. And to be clear, no one said there were protests of any way. Student led Rainbow Day was just a show of solidarity, not a protest of anything. So that's so that's okay. one side of it. Okay, they say it's not a protest. Um but then a flyer started circulating which wasn't put out by BYU to be clear. But it's this weird flyer that says it has the rainbow with a rainbow Y, which is funny because this is before we saw the actual rainbow Y on the on the hillside. Has the rainbow got you seeking shelter from the storm? And it shows this up in a cloud, rainbow rain falling down, but then hitting a an umbrella with a family under it. And the family is all wearing, has just like BYU emblems on them. And then the family's holding the umbrella and the umbrella says fam proc, the family proclamation. And then it says on March 4th, LGBT activists are protesting church teachings on BYU campus. Instead, faithful members will show their support for the family proclamation by wearing BYU swag and carrying or wearing an umbrella, which is an interesting choice. I get the visual there, but umbrellas are not fun to carry around if you don't need them. It's a it's a terrible cumbersome thing you don't want. I don't want to walk around with an umbrella just for fun to show solidarity. Think of something. Get a pin. Make something, buy some swag. So this went around, and understandably, many people were like, "Uh, like, has the rainbow got you seeking shelter from the storm? Like, are you insinuating the LGBT population of BYU is a storm from which one needs to seek shelter?" Uh, obviously, this could flare up substantially and become be a, a major issue. And BYU, for its part, um, saw these flyers on campus and also had them removed and taken down because they were not put out by the university. Um, and they've not received, didn't receive any requests for public expression at this time, as they said, um, you know, there's this counter protest of the non-protest was also sort of a non-protest, but it's, it's, this, it's kind of, like you said, classic Mormondom. It's this like sunny, passive aggressive way of going back and forth about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than addressing it head on instead, let's just kind of be roundabout. Like, it, I mean, was that your secret combination? People walking around with umbrellas? I mean, I don't know. That just seems silly to me. Uh, so thankfully these came down and also rainbow day, I don't think was some crazy anti-family happening. I think we can show solidarity with the, the LGBTQ uh, community at BYU. I think Um, the church has repeatedly called on us to do exactly that. Right. And we're still navigating a lot of it. And uh, the hardest thing I think for me with a lot of that and with just LGBTQ issues in the church is presumably what many people outside of our faith think of us as Latter-day Saints. Because, of course, it's really easy to seize on anything we do and have bad press, like, uh, easily, right? It's it's much easier to paint Mormons as bigots with backward points of view on gay rights and things like that. And, yeah, we do have certain beliefs uh, as Latter-day Saints that I don't think are ever going to be fully reconcilable in that sense. But at the same time, I think we're trying to be more compassionate and moderate and understanding of what we're doing. But those stories aren't the ones that are easy to get out there. And it's a lot, I mean, I've, I've, 
I feel like I've been in my professional life a good ambassador for Mormons who can support the LGBTQ community and people not understanding that previously. They'd be like, oh, I thought Mormons were like totally against like gay rights of any kind. You're like, well, no, it's not as simple as that. And that's good. Like be that person, everyone. I'm not saying I've made a huge difference in anyone's life. Far from it. But uh, we have to do our part because otherwise it's really easy to perpetuate the idea that, you know, Mormons are just more like radical fundamentalist Christians who hate gay people. And that's not true. And we need to do better. We need to do better to evangelize that message while still, of course, embrace your morality and the things we believe in. But, you know, love people. Listen, learn, love, like Richard Osser told us. Yeah. Listen, learn, so love. So this is, this is great. Um one of the things that uh, uh, was posted over the last week in, in preparation for this was uh, a post from Spencer Minnick uh, about uh, BYU and the honor code and the LGBTQ community. And uh, it got a lot of attention for a typic, for a, a Facebook post. Uh, it got uh, 6,600 uh, reactions and, uh, 2,300 shares, 895 comments. So it's, um, pretty well read. Um, and you know, I think some people in the church could be offended by some of the tone, but overall I thought it was a pretty, uh, compelling argument for empathy. Well, what's this, what's the story here? What exactly is basically Spencer, uh, is gay and went to BYU uh, as a closeted gay man and struggled with the experience at BYU and, you know, said it would have been so much nicer if he could have felt safe to talk about the challenges that he felt he was facing, could have talked to someone about the experiences he was having and felt safe to do that and and did not feel like it was safe. And so he starts out his post by uh, taking a typical quote that people will have posted, the sorts of things some Latter-day Saints have posted or BYU alumni have posted, uh, and and then just asks for empathy. But it, the, the typical post is, you agreed to live by the honor code at BYU. If you don't like it, you should just leave. There are plenty of other options. And so he's just, he, he reacts to that, making the case for greater empathy, uh, recognizing that you know, almost all of us at, at that age in college, those are very formative years. We're going through a lot, all of us, and uh, we need a little bit of space for um, growing up and getting help with growing up and meeting the challenges of the experience. So anyway, I thought it was a, 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 a reasoned uh, request for empathy. I think it's really good too. I mean, and some stuff jumps out that's even a little more tangential, but like he talks about, I can tell you when I went through the temple, I had no idea what commitments or covenants I was making. I didn't understand what they yet meant. How great is it now that this just a few, you know, six weeks ago or so, a little bit longer, the church included the main covenants that you make during the endowment session in the handbook. Things like this are good. These are good moves we're making to remove any ambiguity so that you do understand the covenants you're making, right? So that one little thing, hopefully doesn't become as much of an issue that goes down. Here's here's one paragraph I'd like to read, though. He says, quote, we, we know that the church is unlikely to change. We know that the rules are not likely to change. But if you are telling me that a shred of humanity, understanding, and empathy toward those going through the most lonely thing they'll ever experience is too much to ask for, 
I'm going to tell you that it might be time for you to check in with Jesus. Check yourself against the very Christ-like love that you preach, end quote. I think that's a great line, and I think we're still evolving yeah. you know, as, as a people. But like, how can we say we don't have, have empathy? And there's so many I've seen who feel that just showing love and listening to these members of our faith is tantamount to apostasy. You know, you are endorsing the evil for some reason. And that's honest. Like, I don't know if you, you probably didn't see this, but a few weeks ago, for example, Richard Osler, who we've had on the show, I could tell his, he posted up asking if people would review his book. He didn't say much more about it, but if you looked, it's because he was getting review bombed a little bit by people calling him a wolf in sheep's clothing. And his book is sold at Deseret Book. These are reviews on DeseretBook.com. If your book is published and carried by Deseret Book, at some level, the church is giving you an okay. Yeah. At some level, right? Yeah, for sure. And so, and so that's just like staggering to me. And I have to re- recognize there are different points of view, but I don't look at someone like Richard Osler, whose entire goal is merely to talk to people and hear their, their stories and love them as the same as just like condoning a, a certain way of being and, you know, reneging on your covenants or anything like that. It's just like, dude, we just have to love people. And uh, I think this, this is a good post. I agree with you. Yeah. I think it's good. Good reminder. You know, this is a great point to sort of segue into, uh, if you don't mind, Jeff, you grabbed this article about uh, the church uh, continuing to oppose the Equality Act. Ah, and, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, this is the heart of what we're really talking about here. Uh, and so it's a good way to continue the discussion. And because the you know, the church was pretty proactive in helping Utah pass uh, legal LGBTQ protections. And fewer than half of the states have them. And the same protections are not codified in federal law. So Utah is a a remarkable leader in LGBTQ rights on the national stage. We're not certainly on the bleeding edge, but we're certainly, uh, you know, current with the times. At, at, uh, and so the church's opposition to the Equality Act, I don't think should be read as opposition to LGBTQ rights as much as it is opposition to that version. And uh, Utah Congressman Chris Stewart has been advocating for a an alternative uh, that is not supported broadly by the LGBTQ community, but uh, the Washington Blade, which is kind of an LGBTQ publication, mm-hmm. did a, a really fascinating um, summary and side-by-side comparison of current law versus the Equality Act versus the Fairness for All Act. Uh, that I think I think the Fairness for All Act has at least an implied endorsement from the church because of its it's supported by several Utah. Legislators, but yeah, but it, it's interesting. I, uh, it's l- let me just say say this. You know, the when we talk about protecting the LGBT community from discrimination, we, we have to remember that the discrimination they face is mostly from religious people, and so if we exempt religious people from the requirements to discriminate or not discriminate against the LGBT community, TQ community, then, then, then we fail 
to provide any protection because the people who <laughs> we want to protect them from uh, get it out. And so we have to lean into the difficult space uh, in the middle of all of this and talk about what sorts of protections for the LGBTQ community really do and really do not infringe on religious rights. Uh, discrimination and hatred certainly are not religious rights inherently, but but you know at the same time requiring someone to perform a, a sex change operation because they have the technical skills may not make sense. That may genuinely violate someone's religious beliefs. Uh, so yeah, it's tough. It's a tough space. I think we got to lean into it and find a solution. I really appreciate, Devin, that you found this chart from the uh, Washington Blade. I think I think it's extremely easy to get wrapped up when we're talking about this issue of assuming that because the church supports the Fairness for All Act, that sounds kind of hackneyed, and it really means you know we want to kind of have things our way. And da, da, da. this chart's really useful because it shows, like you said, now after Bostock with the Equality Act with Fairness for All Act, and it compares all these different areas. And I'm loving looking over this. This is, of course, one publication's interpretation of it, but to me, it comes off as thorough and fair-minded. I think I don't think it's going out of its way to pick a fight with any side or anything like that. And it just reminds you of the f- the few areas where it differs the most. I mean, what you're really getting down to is I see a lot of things like um, could a religious camp or religious retreat refuse admission to someone for being LGBTQ, for example, with the, the uh, Equality Act? No. With FFA, definitely yes. There's little things like this, like whether the church could deny employment to somebody for being LGBTQ, which I, I, I struggle a little bit with that one because I feel like, well, you know, if you're if you have a the church employees you have to have a recommend, but if you have a temple recommend and you're worthy, well, that's fine. Why would you want to open up the door for them to be able to fire somebody just for being gay, for example? But um, could a small business with 15 or fewer employees refuse to serve LGBTQ people? This brings back, uh, in my mind, masterpiece cake shop, for example. Um, under the Equality Act, no. Under FFA, yes. So we'll try to embed this or link out to this chart. I think this is good reading because it shows you a lot of the nuances there. And uh, and I appreciate it coming from you, Devin. You're a, you know an ardent, an ardent, passionate leftist, and you are, <laughs> see- but you are seeing the the sensibility that they're striving for with this sort of act. And I think that's good. And if we can get that narrative out there, it'll help people understand a lot better what it is. And there's plenty of it I don't yet understand, but I think this is a, a good area for us to explore. So I'm glad you yeah. found that. I think it's really great that you dug that up. I, I, you know, I would vote for the Equality Act if I were in Congress, but, but I think we've but got you're to not. have you're still not. In- but, but, you know, let's, let's be clear. I'm not. Uh, and, you know, we've got to have the conversations. Ah, uh, Devin, are we still in the, the stages of grief? Are you in yeah. denial right now? Are you still oh. working through that? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, 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 at anger. I'm at anger. Bar- bargaining yet? Denial, I'm at anger. <laughs> uh, so circling back to BYU here, um, you might remember after a lot of things that went down in 2020, especially the George Floyd-related protests, Black Lives Matter, uh, BYU's president, uh, Kevin Worthen, announced they were forming a committee to study racism on campus and make, formulate recommendations. I think fully, honestly, I think this was met with a bit of an eye roll for many people who thought this would just be one of these formalities, one of these things we do to save face and look like we care. They've come out with their report and absolutely to BYU's credit, this thing has teeth and they 
they are taking this seriously. And I've read through some of the uh, report. It's like 50 odd pages, um, but like single spacing. I mean, it's like really for people who know how to read. This is not Harry Potter margins, people. It's very upsetting. Uh, so a 63 page report, you can check it out, but I'm really glad to see they are like, they're serious about this. They have surveyed students. They have looked at those who have experienced derogatory remarks, felt isolated, been stared at, intimidated, bullied. Those are just some examples, but they are serious about instituting reforms that are going to get this better. And there's what 26, I think, specific reforms they want to get into. Uh, They want to create a central office of diversity and belonging. They want to create a new position of vice president for diversity, implement clear lines of accountability to empower the office of diversity to handle its job, essentially. Uh, Some of the other ones that jump out at me here, consider additions to the aims of BYU education that reflect statements from prophets and apostles about the need to demonstrate civility, racial, and ethnic harmony and mutual respect. That's awesome. If you're making that part of your mission statement, um, establish a new position of vice president or associate vice president of enrollment and student success that is empowered to do things. A a lot of actual things they want to stand up and hopefully they'll back them up as time goes on. There's even select prestigious scholarship recipients with a greater emphasis on a holistic review of the entire applicant file. I don't know what that implies they were doing before. But I'm glad that they want to look at the entire applicant file. I think that's a great thing. But they also want to create socioeconomic disadvantaged scholarships. This is, I think, BYU getting very close to essentially admitting that systemic racism is real, which is a thorny issue in a lot of communities, and saying, like, look, we have to recognize that even that your race alone at times can put you at a socioeconomic disadvantage. Yeah. And we should be sensitive to that. Is that across the board? No. But is that still something we need to consider as we're looking at the needs of our students? Absolutely. Um, I think it's great. Um, you can check these out. This is a Deseret News article that goes through a lot of the rundown of it, and then we can link out to the main piece. But I'm I'm thrilled that they have like taken this this seriously and they they mean it. Um, hopefully it'll it makes you sad. You think BYU is this happy sunny place, but you also don't. I'm a white guy from suburban California. Like I don't. <laughs> I don't know what the lived experience was for the the minorities in that sense at BYU and what they dealt with. And I'm sure those there were some real things going on that I was completely oblivious to during even my time there. And it's, I'm glad we've come a long way in uh, coming coming at these things. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think about which story to grab here. Uh, let's let's talk quickly about. Girl Scouts, girls, the, <laughs> okay. the Scouts organization, a thousand girls have now become Eagle Scouts. They've That's done an it. exciting milestone that you identified. Uh, I think that's cool. Um, it's a shame to me that the church has not remained engaged in a more open scouting program. I think that is good growth for the scouts. And I'm but, but I don't think that's why they walked away. I don't think they walked. I think they walked away because we finally recognized scouting just wasn't a good use of our resources at the end of the day. Honestly, for how much money you put into it for what you get out, we could just do it ourselves for less. Yeah. 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 That's my, thought. but, but I, yeah, it's, but I, I love seeing girls doing boy stuff. Uh, it's just, you know, there's so many ways in which this world uh, continues. Well, Devin, to- you must be thrilled with the fact that obviously now we're going to have men pretending to be women playing on sports teams. <laughs> and the whole world is ending, as <laughs> yeah. you well know. 
Oh my gosh. Some of the controversies. Uh, yes. Sorry. We can make everything a controversy. Everything is a controversy if yes. we want to be. Uh, that, that's a good one. Here's one thing too. So, uh, you know, you know, Desnat, you know, Desnat, we've talked about a bit. What is, you know, yeah. What is Desnat? It's a movement. It's just a hashtag, whatever. Apparently Utah is looking at creating a new flag because as Devin, you mentioned before the show, many of the flags are just sort of a deep Navy with a state seal on them, which is actually the truth. Many flags are not every flag can be super cool. Like Colorado or Ohio or some of these states that really know what they're doing or California. We have a bear come at me rest of the world. Um, yeah. So, so Utah has a flag that shows, um, basically if you got four triangles, meaning top triangles, Navy, bottom triangles, red, white triangles on the sides that are all coming together to form a rectangle. And above that, just a big old beehive with a star on it. I think this thing is ugly and nobody should use it anyway. This is a terrible flag. They can do way better than this, but apparently this flag is also used by Desnat folks. And now this has come to the, the attention of legislators in Utah who are realizing, Oh, maybe this should not be the state's flag if it is too closely linked to a controversial group. So uh, I just think it's it's like tragicomic in a way. I just, um, but if this is what it takes for us not to use this flag in Utah, good. I want to know the other flag options. Mississippi out Mississippi outsourced. They did a like contest to create their new flag because they removed the uh, the Confederate flag from their state flag. It was still there. That was great. New Zealand had a contest to redo their flag because they wanted to get rid of the Union Jack on their flag and also because their flag looked too similar to that of Australia. Anyways, Utah, you can do. I like the beehive. Lean into the beehive, but I don't know what's up with this weird cross-color thing you've got going on. Maybe you know the history of it, Devin. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. Those lines do very subtly evoke the uh, uh, Confederate battle flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why Desnat likes it, uh, but but that's pretty subtle. It's a right? lame flag. You could go on Fiverr and get a better flag than that. Come on, Utah. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's go on Fiverr. And <laughs> I should go. Flag. I should go on there and have somebody. I'll do it. I might actually do it. I'm very bored right now. That'd be fun. <laughs> there I'm, you go. I'm game. So, uh, other, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to do ahead. some quick ones, real quick, real real quick, uh, because our time. Is our time is running long? Yes, uh, you've all followed. You, I've not the first time I've mentioned the story of the once Tuwila Temple uh, in beautiful Tuwila, the wonderful Tuwila Valley of Utah, land of deserts and arid bliss and nuclear depositories and things <laughs> like that. There is that chemical weapons. Who doesn't Chem- love Tuwila? But so there, the church announced a while ago, a couple of years ago, they built a temple in the Tuwila Valley, the Tuwila Valley Temple. Beautiful. Uh, it made a lot of waves for being the first new temple in Utah not to have an angel Moroni on it, even the, on the top of it. But the architecture is cool. One thing they wanted to do here, building this temple in Erda. Erda is kind of equidistant between Stansbury Park, Grantsville, and Tuwila City to you know the main population centers of the valley. Erda is just farmland. There's not much going on in Erda. Tiny town. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. Maybe it's Erda. I don't know. Erda. I'm not. Okay. Um, so along with the temple, as the church often does, they wanted to build a housing development around it, you know, build some, build some houses. And I've, I've read things that aren't official, but they say that part of doing this is so that basically um, it helps offset the cost of running utilities to a temple that's more isolated, where it's not as easy to run it. So if you build this housing, you sell the land, blah, 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 all the money you get back, you, you know, you profit from it. That's great. They wanted to build some housing, pretty much just like... L- not that dense suburban housing, but there were many, many individuals who were upset about this. 
and did not want this because they felt it was too dense. It did not reflect the community, which in fairness, it does not because Erda is farmland and uh, very rural. Having, having two houses more than like, seriously, more than a hundred feet from one another is like dense for that area. Even though this was not dense, this was not like a big mixed use project with five story condo buildings and, you know, a cool bistro on the ground floor, nothing like that. So, but activists who are members of the church who want a temple in general pushed back enough to make the church uncomfortable with going forward with the plans for this temple or sorry, not for the temple, but for the housing development. And then as we've spoken before on the podcast, this culminated earlier in the year with the church announcing that they're removing the temple entirely. So I guess without that housing development, the, I guess I'm assuming financially it was not there to put the temple in that location. So they moved it down more into the outskirts of Tooele itself. Uh, and I have not heard if they intend to actually develop another housing. Uh, Probably isn't necessary. Probably less so. So yeah. I just think it's fascinating that this can happen, especially among Latter-day Saints loving their own church. I mean, the Salt Lake Tribune points this out, but I also remember when the MTC wanted to build a big tower and the residents whose homes go along the backside of it, their backyards, said there was sort of a gentleman's handshake agreement for decades from the church saying like, we're never going to build tall buildings because we don't want to ruin your sight lines and have you know missionaries looming over your house like you're making your breakfast and you've got missionaries up above, seven stories above you looking down at you. Um, and that got to, there was the same thing. The residents like went to Provo city and, and got the church to back off, but that's the MTC. This is a yeah. temple. This yeah. is a temple. Yeah. And they're just like, no. So cool. It's just cool background on this a story. We've talked about a lot, but here's some background at the trib. If you're down with it. Yes. Okay. Well, I just, again, trying to go through a couple of these quickly. I, I was thrilled to see the church throw in $20 million to UNICEF to help fund the COVID vaccinations around the world. Which is awesome. Uh, it is awesome. Uh, you know, this is not the first time the church has done this sort of thing. The church has donated a couple of million dollars at different times to Rotary right. to support the efforts at vaccinating kids against polio. Uh, and so it was exciting for me to see this, uh, you know, that, that continuing this pattern of, of supporting global public health efforts, uh, Great to see this use of, of funds, especially at this scale, um, uh, because there is a lot of tension around the world over fighting over vaccines and how we're going to get them. And uh, right. I was talking to a friend in Canada today, and uh, they are not getting vaccines yet. And I wouldn't have thought that that was a problem. So, uh, well, Devin, yeah. we have socialized it's, medicine, you know. Yeah, good to see the church stepping up to yeah, help no. out. When you pay for your health care, you get vaccines sooner. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to quit doing all the dry jokes. I don't know. It's fine. Yeah. That's that's unfortunate for the members of uh, Canada. Uh, another thing, we're going to do a, just a couple more here. Oh, I want to leave Mike Lee for you because I think that'll make you so excited. <laughs> okay. So uh, BYU's hiring. Um, they're shifting the focus at BYU from how do we describe it for basically from religious for religious studies, they're shifting it for more, make more faith building before it is scholarship focused would be the way to look at it. I think this has kind of gone back and forth through the history of BYU. Should BYU's religious department function in an academic context and let you studying the scriptures academically, or should it be something that's more like going to Institute or Sunday school where it's an actual place you go for uplift, even though you're at a university? Uh, I can understand all schools of thought for this. I hope it doesn't. 
I get it when you take kind of the core classes. You know, the, the, I remember when I went there, you had to take the core ones. You take your Book of Mormon, New Testament, Doctrine and Covenants. But you had religious electives, and those were fascinating and way interesting. And for those, I actually enjoyed a, kind of an academic approach for those classes in particular. But I think there are some who might disagree with this approach. They think the church is sacrificing academic rigor in favor of just having like, you know, I hate to say this, but like CES goons who can come in and... Yeah, clearly this is uh, BYU's choice. Uh, it's their option. It's their school. The church gets to to pick. And, and uh, there are a lot of programs around the country where there are thoughtful Mormon scholars uh, in and out of the church studying Mormonism and... and uh, so there are places for that academic focus. It would be great in my point. mind if it were also true at BYU, but but I see, you know, they the church clearly wants that to be more Sunday schoolish than academic, and you know that's the church's choice. I wonder when the last time was that they've tried to switch around like this. When I went to BYU, I felt like my especially the core religious classes felt little different than the institute classes I'd taken prior to transferring there. I mean, they didn't seem like, they didn't feel academic really at all. They felt like they were sun, essentially Sunday school classes with homework. And, <laughs> yeah. and that was fine. And that's kind of what I expected going there. So I'm not sure if it's changed much. I don't, I don't, can't imagine those, those main ones have. So I'm curious how this will affect things uh, going forward. But I, I like that you drew that good distinction though. I mean, we have other r- non- even non-religious universities with Mormon studies programs, you know, Claremont's sure. one that comes to mind, for example. Yeah. Uh, and they're doing a lot of that work. I guess you would think, I mean, there is the Maxwell Center, of course, that's that's a thing. So the research and publishing side of it exists. But I guess, uh, and I, I don't know, like, what if you wanted to, would you go to BYU if you wanted to get a graduate degree in religious studies? That's another question that this brings up, right? If you wanted to do that, would you then go to BYU? Because then you're not going to get necessarily that more academic approach where your work would be peer reviewed and respected in the community. So maybe now you're just going down to Claremont. I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting area. I guess it's fine. I think it's okay. I mean, I want, I I like the religious education I had at BYU in that sense, but I, uh, now in hindsight, that was some of the more scholarly things I've learned in that time. I I appreciate that side of it too. And it's strictly knowledge. I get that. It's not something that's like, affirming me but at the same time for example like being more scholarly about church history for me i think helps me to process some of the not as good in our church history rather than have to just sweep it under the rug and wash you know try to wash over it to process it better i think that helps me to understand it better and have that nuance and this and that so if those things go out the window i just don't think i'm not saying they will yeah but, uh, i just hope it Sounds yeah, it'll be good. you know it's just a, a shift in the the focus. I think for some of the folks at BYU, the professors, I think there was some disappointment because they the change in process. Uh, uh, yeah, they they basically made a recommendation to the administration, and the church rejected their recommendations for filling a couple of open positions. And so, because it's going to be much more CES system focused to fill those slots instead, right? So it doesn't matter what kind of actual. I don't want to say actual credentials, like CES is not a credential, but sorry, I've got way too many opinions. All the time I saw like some like institute teachers were like men for one, like like always men, and ones who just like couldn't didn't shake a career doing something else. That in my experience, that's what they always were. 
or they were aspiring to something else. It was like, oh yeah, I couldn't get through law school. So I decided to teach Institute and that's great. And you do a great service. I just think there is a a bit of a difference there from someone who might have like a hardcore passion for the new Testament. And I'm not saying those people don't exist either. I'm sure they exist in the CES system. Sure, sure, sure. There are some great academics in, in Mormondom and, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, we want to see, see, you know, we need everything. We need everything. You know, the the church would really be in trouble if there weren't serious, you know, PhD carrying, uh, you know, people who are studying doctrine and church history. Uh, but maybe it doesn't need to happen at BYU. Maybe it happens somewhere else. That's so. fair. All right, Devin, let's take us out. Tell okay. Me Mike, so, tell me about so your boy. We teased Mike Lee at the top. We'll maybe close on Mike Lee. But Mike Lee is becoming famous now for his... Um, arguably inappropriate church references <laughs> in the context of politics. Uh, he's doing a great job pandering to his base. He knows what he's doing. That's exactly There's right. There's no way Ben McAdams beats him when he's got this going on. Come uh, on. Yeah, I, I'm hoping uh, uh, my good friend Ben can beat Mike in 2022, but we'll see. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, it is pandering. That's what it is. Uh, hey, sorry, I got ahead of it, but what happened? So uh, those were good words to describe it. Uh, Yes, uh, in the context of a political discussion about COVID, uh, he he quoted uh, from uh, Come Come Ye Saints to say, all is well, all is well someday. So anyway, yeah. Well, I mean, the main idea is that he was protesting the bloat of the COVID relief passage. and of course, given his views on government, that's completely understandable. Yes, although it's completely inconsistent with his view that the tax relief bill was perfectly okay, even though it resulted in massive, massive uh, deficits. Ah, now, Devin, getting that's, that, getting that's, money to poor people instead of rich people bothers him. There he is. There he is. There's Canada, Devin, right there. No, but the thing is... But the thing is, Devin, that's just step one. Step two is then to say, oh, no, we have less revenue. We have to cut programs, of course. That's It's all a plan. That's the whole plan. That's the whole idea. That's the whole idea. Um, yes, I agree with this. By the way, if you ever want to, if uh, if you can handle the profanity of it, um, John Oliver's last week tonight from this past week about the unemployment program in the United States and the history of it, just fascinating, if anything. Really interesting to see some of the the numbers and the things behind that and how the studies have shown that when you give money to people, they're more like, they don't usually save it, they spend it. And so the money you give actually generates more money than you put in. That w- It's a one point of view, but I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Mike Lee here, yeah, he's mostly just speaking of, I believe he's speaking of, a that's basically all will be well, as he is saying. Yeah, yeah. When we like get over this and like don't pass this bill. He's not saying like all is well, like COVID will get behind us. He's saying- all is well. We will get the government off our backs and all will be well. I don't know what he meant exactly, but he, clearly the intent was to signal to his base that uh, he's their guy. They should stand behind him. And I think that's sick and wrong. <laughs> so Chris there. Stewart called the, called the bill completely absurd. Yes, but at least he didn't sing a hymn. The only thing I want to say about this, this is not Latter-day Saint focused. Yes, it's big. I don't love it when they when everyone puts riders on stuff. I don't. I don't like, let it be a COVID relief bill, specifically just a COVID relief bill. Like I, I'm all for the debate about the minimum wage. I don't think this needs to be a part of the, that. I, I understand why people try to 
shoehorn other ideas in there because it could pass potentially. But I don't like, I just don't, I wish we didn't do things that way. I I think parliamentarian got it technically right uh, and that this didn't fit within a bill that uh, could be approved through the budget reconciliation process. Uh, But I think that's a shame uh, that that was the case. But yeah, clearly the Democrats were doing exactly what you're suggesting. Uh, And all sides do it. I Like I get, I wish they didn't, but it's happened for years. I wish they would just stop and let this be specifically about COVID relief. That said- there are some circles that will argue that only like they say, what, 9% of it or something like that is actually about COVID relief. And that is just flatly not true. And I've seen that come in some uh, circles on social media. And if you do some research and dig around and find out what's the actual content of uh, the bill, or for example, listen to the 1A podcast from Monday when they walk through and broke down the contents of the bill, also a great way to do it. It is more than 9%. There is some interpretation there as far as like what is what defines COVID relief. Sure. Yeah. But uh, it's it's more than 9%. Because Stewart's one of the ones who says, you know, yeah, 9% is for COVID relief. No, Check it's not. Percent. Poppycock. That is that is that is not me speaking as one party or another. That is me speaking as someone who just recognizes partisan bullcrap when he sees it from either side. And that's just, just get away from that, people. Get away from that. Anyway, what a great show, though. A lot of great, great things work. happening for Latter-day Saints, man. Great work, Jeff. Great work. <laughs> Thank you, Devin. I've worked hard to be here. This is... <laughs> This is this is my this is my jam. Um, anyway, everybody, we hope that you will join us uh, at thisweekinmormons.com. You can see we publish articles ourselves, blog posts, things. You know, we've got we have the uh, the uh, the uh, Latter Day Saint Video Vault reviewing old eighties church films, classic church films, things like that. We have the Convert Files, where Jeff Borders, a convert, talks about some of his experiences being a fa- being a convert to the church and what he's learned from that. Cool stuff you can read there. We hope you'll check it out. We hope you'll subscribe to this podcast. If you have not done so, hit that subscribe button in your podcatcher. If you're streaming this on our website and you use your mobile device, there's links right there for Apple, for Google, for Spotify, or Stitcher, whatever you want. Please do that. Please, please, please. That'd be wonderful of you. And if you want to join our fun Patreon community, $2 a month to help us pay the bills, help us get a better website, even though I rebuilt it last year. You know what I mean. Just, you know, get in there and uh, we love your support. It means a lot to all of us. Thank you to those of you on Patreon who do support the show. It means the world to us. It's very flattering, truly, that you think this is worth uh, your investment, honestly. And speaking of worthy of his investment, it is nice of Devin Thorpe, of course, to be here and find that this show is worth his time and his effort. So I appreciate having you here, Devin. Nice to have you, buddy. Honor to be here. We can't wait to touch base again. Maybe we'll, I'm going to put you, maybe you won't do it or maybe you will, but general conference is coming up and we love to recap. So yeah. think you can think about whether you want to be a part of that show or yeah, not. Yeah, great. I will look forward to that. All right, everybody. So until then, we're almost to the Ides of March. We hope you have a terrific week and we'll talk to you next week. Be well, be holy, and be happy. Bye-bye.